broadcast system. Stand by. Robert Downey Jr., actor, entrepreneur, founder of Footprint Coalition, Rachel Croper, science liaison, impact advisor, managing director of FootprintCoalition.org. We begin. It's all been leading to this. Uh, welcome to FPC's Downstream Channel. This is a vision that Rachel and I have had for a while, talking on uh, all topics, environment, change, uh, impact, etc. I thought downstream, it's like, you know how CB radios, it's an homage kind yeah. of to CB radios and how the signal from the CB radio goes downstream to all the people are clicking. Yeah. But, you know, people are going to listen to this on their phones, right? I okay. Well, in so. that case, let me switch it up. It's a reflection on how our industrialized society needs to reckon with downstream consequences. I like that take better. Rachel and I are going to put items under a mystery box reveal them to each other, make associations that add up to a topic, and then we're gonna dive deep into the subject with three guests that are in some way expert on understanding the complexities of said topic. All right, it's killing me. What's under the box? What's our theme? You really wanna know? I gotta know. Okay. There's a bag of... Waste. Oh, gosh, right. What a great topic. We had a, an assignment, right? We are supposed to collect for one day all the things that we put into the trash. So this is all the waste that I collected over the course of one day. And you can see it's a lot of plastic. Some of it's recyclable in the normal municipal system, but some of this stuff, like these films, are pretty hard to deal with. Uh, this was a pretty average day for me, and it's 1.4 pounds of genuine Venice, California waste. I think we have our topic. Waste. waste. Glorious waste. What is waste? How do humans interact with waste? How has that changed throughout history? And lastly, how can we reimagine the way we use materials? We've got three amazing guests with radically different backgrounds here to guide us. All right, Kropa, what is your quote of the day. Too many people spend money they haven't earned to buy things they don't want to impress people they don't like. Wow. Yep. Will Rogers. Uh, here's mine. Waste not the smallest thing created, for grains of sand make mountains and atoms infinity. That is Eric Knight. Hmm. Wow, we are... Off to a rip-roaring start. Getting back to Venice. Uh, the history of Venice is an interesting case study in humans' relationship with the natural world. Development of the land as we know it today picked up in 1880 when Abbot Kinney, the street we're on, a tobacco baron from New Jersey, set out to build a town reminiscent of Venice, Italy. That meant canals, gondolas, and amusement piers. That's a story for another time but it's a good exercise to contextualize where America's relationship stood with waste at the time. Give us some historical um, context. Okay, 1880 was an interesting moment in waste for America. About 25% of America's cities could then boast a municipally organized system for disposing of waste. 
Some cities like Worcester, Massachusetts used pigs to consume the city's garbage. At one point, the city's piggery, piggery, a farm where pigs are bred or kept, employed 8,000 swine who consumed over 10 tons of garbage daily. <laughs> Nobody quite knew exactly what to do with their trash. In 1894, the citizens of Alexandria, Virginia, enraged by the barges of waste sent down the Potomac River from Washington, D.C., decided to sink the barges upriver. Wow little Boston Tea Party for trash. In 1897, New York City opened its first material recovery facilities to reuse rubber, burlap, and horsehair. So what do we know about uh, present day? What's yeah. the damage? So in America, plastics only comprise about 12.2% of our total waste, but it's, it is the type of guest that stays annoyingly long at the party, yep. somewhere between 450 years and forever. Plastics were originally invented to help nature. We're going to find a replacement for ivory and tortoise shells. Rivaling precious jewels in color and depth, they are among the most beautiful of resinoid products. What was the first one called? Celluloid. Celluloid. Which you like, to a degree. Yeah, this, that, that was a mainstay of uh, my day job. Celluloid, a transparent, flammable plastic made in sheets from camphor and nitrocellulose, formerly used for cinematographic film. Celluloid was for like uh, pool cues and... Celluloid yeah. was a product that was discovered in 1869 by John Wesley Hyatt, who uh, was taking up the charge of a New York firm who was going to offer $10,000 for anyone who could figure out a substitute for ivory because it was really bad for elephants, obviously, and people wanted to play billiards. So even back then, they were thinking of animal conservation and yeah. looking for a better way green yeah. tech materials mm -hmm. okay cool the old adage has it that necessity is the mother of invention nowhere is this truer than in the field of plastics and then so celluloid was a little bit flammable and we wanted alternatives for that so then came along bakelite which was phenol Phenol, a mildly acidic, toxic, white crystalline solid obtained from coal tar and used in chemical manufacture and in dilute form under the name carbolic as a disinfectant. Uh, and it was far less flammable, but, um, you know, again, it was intended to replace certain things. And, and actually, Bakelite jewelry is, like, very desirable now. Oh, by the way, I love all that deco Bakelite jewelry. And then we had, you know, in the 20s, polystyrene and then polyvinyl chloride or vinyl. And then we had polyethylene in 1933. And actually... You know polyethylene for PET, if you see in your number one plastics. Oh, Polyethylene wow. terephthalate is number one. High-density polyethylene is number two. And low-density polyethylene is number four. We have one through seven here in Venice, as a matter of fact, that we recycle. So LA City recycles uh, a lot of different types of plastic. It's time to get some humans in here. All right. Other humans. Other humans. Oh, yep. we do need to. Okay, great. Cool. Uh, who are we bringing up first? Our first guest is Juliet Shore. She's a professor of sociology at Boston College, mm -hmm. also a member of the MacArthur Foundation Connected Learning Research Network. Her research focuses on consumption, time use, and environmental sustainability. All right, great. Bring her on. Great to see you. Hi. Great to see you, too. And you were uh, you spent 11 years in the Harvard Department of Economics before moving to sociology. Does one of those uh, fields inform the other the, and shape the way you approach the subject matter? 
I started studying consumption and consumer culture, and that's what led me from economics to sociology, uh, because consumption always has a, both an economic and a social dimension. Right. And at the time I was uh, starting this, the sort of economics had lost its social, the social dimension. So I think you can't understand what we want to buy without understanding people's positions within a social system. And plastics seem to have been what kicked off the birth of modern consumerism. So in your estimation, was there a clear tipping point when a focus on disposability took over? The current consumer regime is built on disposability. Disposability, the fact that something is intended to be thrown away after use or after a short time. But also on the premise that more is always better, bigger is better, let's keep growing. And this era dates to the period right after the Second World War. And I would say about halfway through that, we kind of, we kind of tip into, into plastics. The, the early period is first about meeting people's needs for housing and transport and basic appliances and so forth. Um, there was a lot of worry among economists uh, during the Depression and the war that after the war, we knew there was going to be a, a sort of spurt of consumerism as people spent what they'd saved during the war. But after that, they thought people would stop buying because they would basically have what they needed. Now, today, that's a quaint idea because what ended up happening was the post-war system created in people the idea that you can never have too much and there is no such thing as enough. But that's a that's a socially constructed idea. Is part of this have to do with advertising and the kind of pre-Mad Men desire to, to try to suggestively tell people they needed more and it was no big deal? Advertising always plays a role, um, and especially in the earlier part of the 20th century in the United States, people who were new consumers looked to advertising to sort of learn what they should do. But I have always, and I've studied the advertising industry. I wrote a book about advertising to children, which I think is pretty powerful. Mm -hmm. Wait, what but is that book called? Please tell us what that book is called. <laughs> Born to Buy. Oh, wait a minute. I remember that book. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Anyway. <laughs> I think for adults, it's less about advertising and it's more about our social context, that sociology point I started with, which is we tend to consume to whoever our peer group is or our reference group. One of the things I found in my research is that people whose friends make more than they do tend to spend more, take on more debt, save less. And so I think that this is more important than advertising. It's, it's what the people in our lives have and buy and how they live. With the, the following caveat, we increasingly have friends who are online. So there is a way in which I think the content of media matters, but, but more than the advertising. And is that where the infatuation to own things actually comes from? Is this comparative thing with your peer group? Or, I mean, do you think it's, you know, more about the dopamine hit that you get from when you receive something, when you own it, when you feel like you are in charge of it? I think it's much more the former. I mean, that is my bias. But I think we get the dopamine hit because of the social meaning. Mm -hmm. So when all my friends start, you know, redoing their kitchens or suddenly everybody went to Portugal or, you know, <laughs> whatever it is, <laughs> when the people that we 
associate with, uh, you know, it's friends and family. It's also coworkers. So a lot of consumer desire comes from people we encounter in the workplace. And more and more, the workplace is a place where people talk about, you know, where they went on vacation or what their new car is or the redo model of the kitchen. Did we used to value the environment more and try to limit waste or is it the case that we will always maximize consumption? So it's not until countries become wealthy that they can afford to even have waste, Mm -hmm. that they can spend human labor and use precious ecological resources to just waste them. But it's, it's a combination. The culture and the economy go together in a certain way. So as we become richer and can afford to waste, we also develop a culture that values waste. And so um, one of the reasons I think this, these are learned behaviors is if we look at historically the behavior of workers as they have gotten more money, and historically see, you see a lot of behavior in terms of people wanting to work less. If they had the opportunity, they would, you know, make what they need to meet their needs and then they'd stop working. Mm-hmm. And you you see so much less of that today because we have developed that culture in which there's you never have enough and in which increasing numbers of people are actually very materially insecure, so they have to work long hours. So A, other uh, alternative economic models that you prefer, and also how can or could an emerging economy avoid winding up in the rut where we find ourselves? I think the key to a transition that's actually going to be good for people, that's going to have a, you know, that's going to work and is not going to be just about taking stuff away, is for us to take our productivity growth. Productivity growth, increases in the amount of capital available to each worker, the education and experience of the workforce and improvements in technology. So every individual for, you know, an hour or per day or per year has a certain amount of our collective production that they they can produce. And with productivity growth, they can do more of it in any given amount of time. So what's happened in this country in the last 50 years is we just kept producing more and more with that productivity growth. And that's really in contrast to where we were for the 100 years before that, which is that we were using a lot of it to give ourselves more free time. And I think that the path that can really help us going forward to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions and reduce our impact on the environment, at the same time giving people more well-being, is to use productivity growth to progressively reduce hours of work. And so every year, instead of producing more, let's just give ourselves time off. I'm about to start a really, what I think is going to be a great research project in Ireland uh, for companies that are going to four-day work weeks without reducing pay. Mm -hmm. The Spanish government is about to start a big pilot on this four-day work week. It's super popular. It'll help families. It'll help communities. It'll help our health. It'll help our environment. I hope you don't mind if we uh, reach out to you and ask you to be part of our coalition and our steering committee and all that stuff. And uh, it's just really cool to get your perspective. I'm just thrilled you're doing this. It's really wonderful. Good to see Thank you. you. Fire. Fire. 
two, a bird's eye view. We are in, as before mentioned, an addictive pattern of exploiting the natural resources, pumping out consumer goods, and then dumping the waste with disastrous effects. This is why we're pretty excited about material science. Material science, the study of the properties of solid materials and how those properties are determined by materials composition and structure. To quote Annie Leonard from Story of Stuff, Story as of you stuff, know, that's right. we live on a finite planet and our materials economy operates as a linear system. And you cannot run a linear system on a finite planet indefinitely. Did you know that while there are about 2,000 active satellites orbiting Earth at this moment, there are also 3,000 dead satellites littering space. What's more, actually, there are around 34,000 pieces of space junk bigger than 10 centimeters in size and millions of smaller pieces that could nonetheless prove disastrous if they hit something else. So thank goodness our guest is someone with a bird's eye view of the problem and the planet who better than, yep, an astronaut. I love this man. He's multifaceted, multi-talented, multi-hyphenated. He's Leland Melvin. Uh, he was five when he watched Neil Armstrong take his first step on the moon. Ended up with a scholarship to the University of Richmond, where he studied chemistry. Uh, he ended up with a hamstring injury when he was playing football, actually. Oh, that's right. What team was it? Detroit Lions. Detroit Lions. Yeah, drafted God. by the Lions, but he ended up with a hamstring injury. Leland jokes, he did what many former NFL players do at that point. He went to work for NASA. And space changed him forever. All right, let's bring in Leland Melvin. Thank you for coming space casual today. I love it. I love it. What were you like as a kid? I have to know. A little nerdy, but kind of on the kind of nerdy jock side. So yep. when I was like after football practice, you know, the guys were calling me Larry Lab and stuff. And I had this chemistry set that I mixed these two chemicals together and blew my mother's living room up. And I, <laughs> By the way, I heard that she got you a chemistry set that was not age appropriate to begin with. Non-OSHA certified. <laughs> <laughs> when I mixed these chemicals and I blew this hole up and I was like leaning back, my eyes were like this big because my brain was activated to science. Yeah. And all I needed was a lab coat and goggles to be a chemist. I now, at, a, at an age of probably fifth grade, I knew what it meant to be a scientist. And that, that led my journey. Just those informal education, out-of-school time learning moments were critical for my development. And then they gave you a Bunsen burner, and it was off to the races. <laughs> yeah. Then they let you blow things up officially in chemistry. Yeah. Chemistry it's just amazing to me that we've all wound up here today with this common cause, but you are the guest and it is you whose mindscape we must probe. Okay, because I started my sort of space fascination with space ice cream solely. I remember it. At the, uh, Which the, we don't have in space. Yeah, yeah. I, I do know that. So speaking of the things that you do bring in the lead up to a mission, how are you determining what it's absolutely essential to have up there? The personal things that you bring, um, you have a, a small set of space that you can put these certain things in, like baseball cap from my university, a pennant, a football from the National Football Hall of Fame. We even took up a NFL coin for the coin toss for the Super Bowl. Oh. And that was pretty cool. Oh, man. Flip the coin. And the coin's spinning, and it goes up into this overhead area. We lose the coin, and then we do rocks, papers, scissors <laughs> to determine who, who gets go the— fish uh, it out. But more like the food, you do food tasting, and you pick the things that you like the, as long as they have the nutritional uh, value that you need for you know, your, your metabolic intake for that day. 
Is that, is that the idea when you're in space, you have just the things you need and you can fix anything that you need and things are meant to be used over and over and over and over again, right? I remember the first crew that went up, I was in Kazakhstan when Bill Shepard, Yuri Gazinko, and Sergei Krikalov launched from the Kazakhstan Cosmodrome and they snuck on a Makita drill because that wasn't certified. It wasn't manifested, but they knew they needed that drill oh, wow. to build some things. There's certain little things that you have to have to do the, do the task. And I think our tool, our toolkit grew by leaps and bounds after that first, um, that first mission to the space station. But you do have to be able to fix everything. Um, you can't call the Maytag repairman to come and fix the toilet. And we all, are, <laughs> we all have this lifelong learning modality of the, you know, with, with the right basic training, the right basic training with tools or with systems or with procedures, you can do anything. What sort of similarities can you draw between being on a high-functioning football team and working with a team of astronauts aboard a space shuttle? I relate it to a wide receiver and a quarterback at third down and long, and you have two minutes left in the game, and the crowd is standing up and they're stomping on the bleachers and you can't hear anything. You're having to do audibles. Audible, a substitute offensive or defensive play called at the line of scrimmage. You know, if the, if the defense rolls up on you, you go from a 10-yard out to maybe take it to the house and score a touchdown. Yep. And so when we're training, there are times when we have no calm. And on the flight deck, you have a commander, a pilot, mission, two mission specialists. And there may be times when you can't hear anyone, but you use sign language. You use tapping someone on the shoulder and pointing to the switches that you have to switch or we all die. You know, so there's this this similarity in communication when the communication is gone. And how do you do that nonverbally to save the day? It is, it is such a small club of people who have been able to have that, that experience of ultimate objectivity. What, what do you bring back that we can chew on and, and, and think about with all the, the crises we're in now, particularly with the environment? I think, Robert, the biggest thing is perspective that you get from space. When you when you're working with people that you used to fight against and Yuri and Hans from Germany and Rush, you know, if any one of us flips the wrong switch, we're all dead. And so we learn to live together as a family, even though I might not speak their language, they might not speak my language that great, but we figure it out because it's our survival. When you look back at the planet from space, it's one blue marble with no political borders. Right. And you see that ecosystems are all connected in some way. So what affects, and we've seen that so much with the pandemic. I mean, one person gets on an airplane from one country and comes to another, tons of people are infected. And that's the same thing with our environment. When we see the, the Sahara desert sandstorms wrapping around and coming back around the planet, we actually do photography, earth observation photography during uh, natural disasters because we're going around the planet every 90 minutes and we can get a picture um, from the ground, someone saying, get a picture of this, try to find this, try to see this. And with zoom lenses, we can zoom in pretty close. I mean, you have other, you know, um, satellite assets that can zoom in too, but we're, we're right there and right. we can respond very rapidly. So it, I think that perspective that. is the main thing that we can do to bring the civilization together to where we're working together as one family, one team. You know, you think about local, you think about your community, 
then spread out, you know, local to global to take care of everyone. Because that's 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 the true pandemic. We don't work together and we we trash our environment Mm -hmm. and people say that the earth is fragile. And I always thought about that till I went to space and I look back at the planet and I'm like, the earth is not fragile. It's doing its thing. We're the fragile ones. We're going to be burped out. We're going to die. We're going to go away from our, you know, misgivings. But the earth is going to keep doing its thing and it's going to re- repopulate itself, reconstitute itself and, and figure it out. And we're going to be gone. I'm hoping you'll uh, loan us uh, some of your uh, photographs. I love uh, salt. Is that a salt mine? That was floating over the Dead Sea. And I'm looking down and I see these channels. This, you know, I'm like, what is that? Those, every one of those channels is a line, a row of salt from mining sea salt and minerals. And, I, and at first when I saw it, I didn't, I didn't know what it was. But I did see the, the Dead Sea close by. And you could see, if you look closely, you can see where the water is channeled over to those blue, mm-hmm. turquoise blue divisions. And then you see the, the dried salt in between. The orbital shift, the overview effect, what we look at when we look at the planet from space, we get this cognitive change in the way we see ourselves connected to the rest of the universe. And if you go to space and you have this one mindset about where you exist in this space, you come back changed forever. And and you try to share as much of what you felt, what you saw, what you tasted, what you experienced, how your heart, your soul changed with anyone that will listen. And that's why I think we become such ambassadors for humanity, because that's what we see when we look at the planet is humanity. Mm-hmm. And, and I think once we, 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 we take down the screens, we take away some of the other things, and we, we get a chance to get back to where we can sit across from each other and break bread and talk about the day and talk about how do you feel? How do you really feel? What do you love? What music do you like? You know, What do you like to do? And get those things. And then we form these teams and coalitions of people that trust each other and say, okay, let's solve this problem down in the community. There's lead paint on the on the houses, some houses down here. How do we fix that lead paint so these kids don't eat it and get, get lead poisoning? Taking care of locally to globally. Mm-hmm. Coalitions of communities that trust each other and believe in each other. And once you have someone believe in you and they have your back, you can do anything. We have much to learn from you, sir. And I want to thank you for your time today. Hey, thank you and Godspeed on the journey. Act three, a slice of the solution. Even though virtually all plastics can be recycled, many aren't because the process is expensive, complicated, and the resulting product is of lower quality than what you put in, the carbon reduction benefits are also less clear. The myth of recycling looms large, right? So in 40 years, less than 10% of plastic has ever been recycled. For decades, Americans have been sorting their trash, believing that most plastic can be recycled. But the truth is, the vast majority of all plastic produced can't or won't be recycled. The plastic industry promoted recycling as a way to beat back a growing tide of antipathy toward plastic in the 80s and 90s. And the industry was facing initiatives to ban or curb the use of plastic. So recycling became a way to preempt the bans and sell more plastic. Thank gosh, our guest is 
Daniel Carraway. He is the co-founder and CEO at RWDC Industries. This serial entrepreneur began his career at International Paper. He was working on their research division before founding two previous companies that became cornerstones of the bioplastics industry. Daniel Carraway. Well, good afternoon. It's really great to talk to you. Full disclosure, we're investors and, and huge supporters of RWDC. We believe that you guys can be one of the prime movers in finally addressing this issue. We're really big fans of what you're trying to do to to raise awareness and, and implement some of the things that we all know we need to do to improve our environment. Tell us about your childhood and how that shaped your, your interest in the environment. Well, I, I grew up in a very rural area of the Deep South, and I grew up in, in an area where there weren't very many people, but there was a lot of wonderful nature around. And so I, I was just fascinated by how things worked in nature. And so all of my life, I've been investigating how can we as humans work in harmony with nature and use natural processes and natural materials so that we can have the things we, we need and we want to improve our lives, but really do that in a way that doesn't take away from nature. I, I know, you know, for many, uh, many decades, a lot of people have thought about ownership of the things that are around us. I like to think of it more as stewardship. Stewardship, the job of supervising or taking care of something, such as an organization or property. We should be good stewards of the natural resources that we have, and of course, use them to, to make our lives pleasant and productive and nice, but do that in a way that does not diminish those natural resources for the following generations. So why did you decide to go into the materials industry to begin with? Well, I, I saw what we were doing with plastic. And, and one of the things that plastic has enabled us to do is, is a good thing. We've been able to distribute food more broadly. So functionally, the plastics that we've been using have enabled us to do a lot of good things for people. Uh, the sad thing is it's been a terrible thing for the environment. We have to have a dual approach, right? We have to clean up the mess that we've made, but we also have to stop making the mess and utilize materials that would naturally have broad end-of-life options that we could we could cycle back in the carbon cycle. Carbon cycle describes the process in which carbon atoms continually travel from the atmosphere to the Earth and then back into the atmosphere. We just need to put the the work and the creativity and the persistence and the resourcefulness that, that you know, human beings have, we need to focus that on, um, on causing these uh, problems to be diminished instead of enhancing them. Do you think that plastics have become greener over time? Unfortunately, no. Uh, we've made some efforts, um, but we, we really haven't done a good job of, of really making a significant impact. Even starting in the 70s and 80s, we started talking about recycling. It just doesn't work. There are less than 5% of the plastics that are made every year actually get recycled into another use. As a global average, less than 5%. But I think we're, we're finally becoming sufficiently aware of the problem that maybe we will begin to make some progress with combinations of developing new materials and using our current materials more wisely. What 
really, really qualifies as green plastic in your estimation? And why is PHA different from other plastics that we're used to? PHA, bio-based, biodegradable plastics produced by fermentation from a range of feedstocks, including waste. One of the really important aspects of plastics that would enable it to be truly green is not having microplastic residues. Microplastics, fragments of any type of plastic less than five millimeters in length. They enter natural ecosystems from a variety of sources, including cosmetics, clothing, and industrial processes. It's astounding how bad the microplastic problem is, and we're only now just beginning to realize the extent of the problem. We know now about microplastics, about what we knew about cigarette smoke in the 1960s. We knew we were beginning to understand in the 60s and 70s, you know what, you better stop using tobacco and smoking it because that stuff will kill you. Well, that's what we're learning about microplastics right now. PHA is a material that is completely microplastic free. Every living organism on the planet utilizes PHA in its normal metabolic cycles. And so it's the ideal choice to use for our food packaging, our food service, many of the articles that we we make and use every day, because not only do our bodies know how to use PHA as an energy molecule, but every other organism on the planet can utilize PHA. And RWDC is, we're not stopping at PHA, we're making a number of other natural molecules that are going to be synergistic and additive to PHA because the problem is so large we're, we're going to bring all these exciting toys to the party to, to <laughs> fix the problem. So, uh, I hope so. You know, our vision is that within three to five years, some of these leaders that we're working with are going to be showing the way. They're going to set the example. And then others are going to be inspired by that. And with the help, you know, Robert, of yourself and your organization, you know, to, you know, to say, hey, kudos to these guys. Look what they're doing. Uh, That leadership and that setting the example is going to lead to the answers to your questions about how do we do this? So the problem is so massive that I don't think any of us today can sit here and say, okay, guys, listen, ABC, one, two, three, here's how you do it. Sure. And as far as, you know, the rallying cry for all this stuff, I mean, you know, uh, let us know what we can do. We're going to keep checking in with you. Glad to have you involved. We'll 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 have fun sharing some of all these other new things too as they roll out of the pipeline. Awesome. Thank you, Daniel. Take care. Okay. Wow. That was great. Okay, so what we've learned today, I think, is we need to slow productivity growth and then we'll build teams and coalition and learn to fix broken things, whether that's objects that can be perfectly usable again or systems for communities to be better stewards of the planet. And then we'll get new material science and come up with substances that we can replace some of what we do need with better biomimetic materials. Biomimetic materials. Materials developed using inspiration from nature. And there we have it. There is uh, episode one, the downstream channel. Rachel Kropa, Robert Downey Jr. We'll see you next time. We have much to consider. Mm